Well, now would be a good time to uh, make um, reference to the uh, handout that I have. I have some uh, notes and scripture passages that I will be referring to uh, from time to time. And I just want to thank you for the privilege that I have of studying the Word every week. I begin it wondering what I will say, and I end the week wondering how to cut it so that I just choose one or two gems that come from God's Word. And these passages are mainly described or mainly recorded to describe what happened to Jesus. And they're not in the first instance given to us as a lesson. And week after week, one of the things that I've said is that although we will have lessons that we can learn from the text, the big lesson is to sit back and let Jesus do his thing for you. He's intentionally dying for you. We read uh, a passage that you might have thought was written at the time of Jesus because it seemed to describe Jesus so clearly. It was written hundreds of years before Jesus and described the suffering of Jesus, which we have read about happening and being fulfilled here in the Gospel of Matthew. There is a thought that occurs to me that I want to make a focal point of our passage beyond allowing Jesus to die for you and allowing his death to be the way by which you are made right with God. We as Christians believe that there's no other way to be made right with God. It's not being good, it's not going to church, it's not necessarily being baptized, it's none of the sort of things on the list. But we believe that you're saved by God's goodness through what we read about Jesus doing this week and over the next few weeks when he ultimately ends up dying on the cross and paying the penalty for our sins. This is an act of mercy. But I think a fair way to summarize our text this afternoon would be to say something like, human fickleness is put up against holy fortitude. Human fickleness is here poised against holy fortitude. And although the former scores, human fickleness plays itself out in the narrative, holy fortitude prevails. And if you're wondering what that really means, it was summarized in what I said to Ambrose just a few minutes ago. It's a common expression. When lemonade is thrown at God, he makes, or when lemons are thrown at God, he makes lemonade. He makes this gift of salvation and invites us to taste the wine and to eat the bread of his salvation, which is a way of picturing his death on the cross. And when we partake of that, we experience joy, we experience peace, we experience new life, we experience salvation, and we experience the forgiveness of sins. That comes not because we're good, it comes because God is good. And so I want us to take a few minutes here as we look over the story uh, this afternoon to notice cases of people's fickleness, human fickleness. And I hope that you'll be able to identify with this human fickleness. But at the same time, we will see holy fortitude in that in every case, no matter what we do, scripture is fulfilled. Let's begin with Peter. Peter's inconsistency. 
In verses 69 to 74, Peter does the opposite of what he promised he would do. Not long before our passage today, Jesus, Peter had said to Jesus, Though everyone else betray you, I will not. I will die for you. And two weeks ago, we saw Peter actually pull out a sword and be willing to sort of go to battle for Jesus. But Jesus turned to him and said, The way of the sword is not the way uh, at all. Because if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. I'm committed to passively allowing my death to happen so that you can be forgiven, Peter. But Peter, the bravado man here, denies Jesus. And the story is told in such a way as to make us marvel at the fickleness of Peter. It begins in the courtyard when a servant girl, just a single servant girl, comes up to him and says, you were with the Galilean. This is not a person of great power. This is just a, a, young, a young girl, a servant girl. And Peter overreacts by denying before all of them, saying, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, it's not a big crowd that gathers this time, but yet another servant girl. The text simply says another one came along and says to him and to those standing by, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Peter raises the tempo in his denial, and he again denies, but this time with an oath. And he says, I don't know the man. Short while later, those standing by there come, and they say to Peter, truly you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. We can tell by your accent that you're a Galilean, one of those country bumpkins from Galilee, and your, your rabbi talks like him. And then Peter says, in verse 74, he began to invoke a curse. And it doesn't tell you upon whom he cursed. And most commentators say that they don't tell you upon whom he cursed because he cursed upon Jesus. Typically, when you use that word curse, you use your word on yourself. But he began to curse, likely, in the name of Jesus, and to say, I don't know the man. Then the penny drops. So here you see an example of trumped up, exaggerated, not exaggerated, but I mean, that's what Peter does. I mean, it's not like he, he didn't do it. It's just over-the-top denial, contrary to what he said, human fickleness. And then comes the reaction of God, the divine fulfillment. Peter is immediately reminded when he hears, cock-a-doodle-doo. And he remembered the utterance of Jesus, the prophecy of Jesus. Before a cock crows, you will deny me three times. And making his way outside, he cried bitterly. A human has been fickle. The Holy One has showed fortitude by saying, I prophesied this. Peter, it doesn't matter whether you decide to honor me or whether you decide to betray me. You have it your way, regardless, prophecy is going to be fulfilled. And really, the main thing that I want to share with us this afternoon is that the sinful things that we do, the human fickle things that we do, are bad, and we shouldn't do them, but they don't alter the plan of God one whit. In fact, God is using even the awful things that we do to accomplish His purpose. I don't know whether you remember as far back as Matthew chapter 4 and the story of the temptation of Jesus, but let me just remind you because there's a wonderful example of it right there. 
we're told in Matthew's gospel that the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness in order to be tested by the devil. God, the Spirit, led Jesus into the wilderness in order to be tested by the devil. Well, what do the devil and Jesus have in common that the Holy Spirit would direct Jesus to be tested by the devil? Absolutely nothing. The devil has his way. The devil does exactly what the devil wants. No, conver no coercion from God. This was not planned by God. But God used everything that the devil threw at Jesus to prepare Jesus for the cross. You remember the second temptation? Satan lifted him up on top of the temple, which is a place of sacrifice. And there is Jesus lifted up on top of this place of sacrifice. And the devil says to him, since you're the son of God, why don't you come down from there? Satan is trying to trip him up. But God knows that when Jesus is hanging on the cross, the place of sacrifice, that evil men will look at him and scorn him and say, since you are the Christ, why don't you come down from there and then we'll believe you. You see, Satan was doing his best to trip up Jesus. He was doing his evil worst. And all the while, God was at play, simply saying, thank you for training my son and preparing him for the cross. Bravo. Satan wants the worst, but God can turn the worst into his very purposes. There are a number of verses that underscore this, and I just want to refer you to some of them. They begin on page... Where are my page numbers? Page 7. You remember Genesis chapter 50, Joseph? His brothers do evil to him. They pull every trick in the book. And at the end of it all, Joseph is able to say to his brothers, although you intended me harm, God intended it for good, so as to bring about the present results, the survival of many people. Proverbs 16, 1 and 4 say, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And then this one is especially poignant. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Proverbs 19, 21, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. That could be the title of the sermon, many are the plans of a man or a woman's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Here we see in our passage, time and over again, the same thing happened. Jew, uh, Peter has been inconsistent, but God's plan continues. The Jewish leader's plan is consistent from beginning to end. We want this guy killed. We're going to do whatever we can to have this guy killed. Doesn't foil the plan of Jesus at all. Judas is inconsistent. He plans to betray him, and then he has a change of heart. Is God's plan undermined? Not at all. The plan actually ends up fulfilling a prophecy that comes predominantly through Zechariah the prophet. And in the course of the exchange between Judas and the religious leaders, none of them has the foggiest idea that their debased actions their fickleness and their folly, and even Judas's remorsefulness is accomplishing God's will. 
Judas comes and says, I blew it, you guys. I've been guilty of innocent blood. They say, not our problem. Do what you want, buddy. Get out of here. And then Judas throws the 30 pieces of silver into the inner sanctuary of the temple where only the priests can go. So Judas is basically saying, here's the money, you guys. You get it from the place of the inner sanctuary. And they go and they, they pick it up and they're kind of in dread and they say, this is blood money. What, what do we do? Well, let's give it to charity. Let's uh, buy the potter's field with it. And all the while through this awful case of human fickleness and distorted justice, <laughs> holy fortitude comes through. And we find, no doubt, that as a result of their action, they end up fulfilling a prophecy of, of, uh, of Zechariah that was prophesied several hundred years before. They come before Pilate now, beginning in chapter 27, verse, 30, verse 11. Pilate uh, is charged with questioning Jesus, Pilate's fate, so he thinks. Jesus' fate, so Pilate thinks, is in Pilate's hands. And Pilate is amazed. He hears the testimonies given by the religious leaders, but Jesus says nothing. This kind of makes Pilate wonder. Those of you who have been parents or uh, owners of pets, especially a dog, will know that in a busy household with young children, sometimes it's too quiet. You wonder, why am I not hearing that noise? And you know that in the kitchen or in the porch, the child has gotten into something that they shouldn't have, and they're doing something that they shouldn't have, and the silence just tells you. You know, the, the dog has taken the roast beef off of the uh, kitchen counter or uh, the child has entered into something that they know they shouldn't, and they're just fascinated with it. Well, Pilate had the same reaction with Jesus. He couldn't figure out why this guy was so quiet. It not only kind of made him think that something ominous was up, which of course it was. Jesus had simply surrendered his will to the Father and said, not thy will, but mine be done. I'm going to let it unfold. And as circumstances unfold, I know that I will die for the sins of the people. But Pilate is irritated because he wants a good show here. He's reluctant to condemn a man without at least having the defendant explain himself. Uh, Roman judges uh, were reluctant to execute anyone who didn't have the chance to give defense at least twice or three times. And Jesus has kind of thrown in the towel. And Pilate is saying, don't you hear what they're saying? And he's astounded. In verses 15, to 18. This could be understood, and this is speculative, I'll admit, but the commentators and historians say we have no idea that this feast ever existed, that this custom during the feast ever existed, excuse me. And so it's almost as though in the narrative, the reader is led to wonder, oh no, Pilate has this custom that we didn't know about where he's allowed to release somebody. Maybe Jesus is going to be released and God's plan is going to be foiled because Pilate has this odd custom. And so Pilate wants to be off the hook. He wants to let Jesus off the hook. And he says, okay, I've got two Jesuses here. Jesus Barabbas and Jesus the Christ. Yes, Jesus Barabbas and Jesus the Christ. Barabbas' first name was Jesus, but it soon got eliminated from the text because of the discomfort of having the name Jesus associated with Barabbas. But there's a meaning here. Jesus, Jesus Barabbas actually means Jesus, son of the father. 
And I think that the Holy Spirit is again reminding us of holy fortitude. Uh, something's come up. Has God's plan been foiled? Pilate has this custom. Oh no. Is Jesus's destiny at stake? Well, you got Jesus in option number one, and you got Jesus in option number two. And by the way, <laughs> if Jesus is released, the Christ, Jesus Barabbas is going to die in his sins without a choice, one way or the other. He probably died in his sins anyway. So this is, in other words, a way of saying that you can either have it according to one human way of understanding, Jesus the Barabbas, or the other way, Jesus the Christ. But in either case, God is in charge. And so the crowd does the wrong thing, but it's in accordance with the plan of God. And the holy purpose prevails. Here we get an interjection of prophecy of a different kind, and it comes from a pagan woman. In the midst of the dialogue, a woman is, or sorry, a, a Pilate is sitting on the judgment seat. I'm on verse 19. His wife sends him a message. Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I suffered much today in a dream on account of him. Holy fortitude made itself known in the dream of a pagan woman. And Jesus appeared to her in a dream, and she was very much troubled by it. Out of the blue comes this, again, back and forth between human fickleness and holy fortitude. Human fickleness and holy fortitude. Human fickleness has its day. Holy fortitude prevails. Because by the end of the story, Jesus is delivered to be crucified and is scourged. The people are coerced by the, by the religious leaders to choose Barabbas. And when they say, let him be crucified, they say it twice. But by using the passive voice, Matthew reminds us, as he likes to do with the passive voice, that when the subject isn't indicated, the subject you know is God. Let him be crucified leads you to the question, who was it who crucified Jesus? Well, the answer is, it was the will of God, but it was because of you and me, Jew, Gentile, man, woman, religious, pagan, Greek, Roman. You and I, my friends, are the reason why he went to the cross. But it's okay, because holy fortitude determined that by his suffering, you and I would be set free. And so we have this incredible drama unfold before us of human fickleness and holy fortitude. One of the things that I learned from this, in addition just to the wonder of our salvation and to the, the glory of Jesus in allowing himself to do this, and the, the just indomitable will of God to save us and to bring us peace, is that God is omniscient and God is omnipotent. Think about all of the different circumstances that could uh, outplay. For example, um, and you'll read it in the notes that I have, um, Millard Erickson, who's a Baptist theologian, he says, do you know, it's kind of complicated if you say to God, Lord, if you want me to do X, arrange Y. Because 
God is in charge of absolutely everything. And his why might have been the way to help somebody else. And so he encourages us not to set up kind of um, Gideon's fleeces, as it were, because he says those Gideon's fleeces that we set out are more superstitious than pious. And in fact, God is really, really busy <laughs> because all of us are doing our own thing, exercising our free will. But God is accomplishing his purposes for good, for our good and for the salvation of the world in the midst of our evil. I think I relaxed a little more this week after, after studying this sermon. There's a lot of evil and terrible things going on in the world, and they are awful. They're against the will of God, but absolutely nothing trumps the prevailing will of God to act in the best interests of those whom he loves and to die for the sins of the world. In the end, God wins. Humans are fickle, but the holy prevails. Amen.